Good evening, my name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Grace Downtown, and we are so glad that you are here to worship with us tonight. And if you heard the sermon last week, I'm just glad you came back. Uh, It was kind of a heavy sermon last week, uh, but maybe you're back to see what happens next in the story. Uh, We are going through a series called The Story of God, where we are looking at the story arc of the whole Bible. And um, the reason that we're doing that is because we feel like the story of the Bible is really the story of God. And just as we looked at in week one, God is creator. We believe that he created us in his image. So as we look at the story of God, we're really looking at the story of mankind, of you, of me. Um, It helps us understand and explain the world that we live in when we know the story of God and when we know our story. So we'll jump into that in just a minute. Uh, We are so glad you you are here. You've come on uh, a really packed night. We have some great things in store tonight. Uh, We have communion at the end of the service where we uh, break the bread and drink of the the fruit so that we can remember what Christ has done for us. And then after the service tonight, we're going to go through the line quick, grab some pizza, head back to our seats, and we are going to have our theological forum. We have these from time to time, and tonight we're talking about mental health in the church. Um, If you have kids and you want to stick around for the forum, that's great. You can just leave them downstairs. We're going to give them some pizza, give them some espresso, and put them in a padded room. So they'll be just fine down there. Uh, If you're not staying for the forum, go ahead and pick up your kids as normal. So um, my wife and I love movies, and I've been thinking about a lot of movies as we go through the story of God series and as we're looking at uh, things in kind of a narrative form. And um, unlike the Lord of the Rings movies, which I did not care for, I really liked the Hobbit movies. And so um, my wife and I went to the first Hobbit movie, really liked it, uh, knew there was going to be a second part. So we went to the second part and we're sitting watching the movie, really enjoying it. And if you've seen the movies, the end of the second movie, there's a dragon going through and getting Lake Town all on fire, destroying everything. And then black screen, roll credits. My wife and I were like, what? We didn't know there was going to be a third part. So we thought the movie had ended right there. And we were like, what's going to, oh no. And then, you know, the next movie comes out like two, three, six years later. So we had to wait forever to figure out what was going to happen in the movie. It was a, a total cliffhanger. That is probably what last week felt like for you if you heard the sermon. We spent about 39 of the 40 minute sermon, 39 minutes talking about how messed up the world is. We looked at what has gone wrong. Because here's the thing, as we look at the story of God and how it starts off, it doesn't take us until the third chapter of the first book to see things go wrong. And not only that, but as we look at our lives, as we look at mankind, as we look at our society, as we look at the world, as we look at all of history, we see that something has gone terribly wrong. The things have not gone according to what God's original intent was for mankind and the world. Uh, Things don't go according to our plan. Um, And we look at a world where we feel like something has gone wrong. Well, hopefully in this next chapter, we get to take a look at some additional pieces that will help us start to understand what already has taken place, but also what will take place 
in the future. The very first week, Pastor Brooks was overviewing this series that we're going to do, and he talked about um, someone laid out for him just the basics of the Star Wars movie, and he's like, uh, hard pass. That doesn't sound great at all. And so we went and saw a movie called Sinbad. In retrospect, terrible choice. But here's the thing. You may know bits and pieces about the Bible, but maybe you've never put everything together to see the consistent narrative, the consistent story. And tonight we are covering the biggest section that we will cover in this series. We are covering Genesis chapter 12 through the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. So buckle up, get comfortable, here we go. Um, But what this tonight is going to do, hopefully, is introduce you to some characters and some concepts that maybe you've heard about, but you haven't been able to connect the dots. Because there's a lot of goals in the sermon tonight, but one of them is to intrigue you enough that you say, you know what, I know more now, and I want to dig in for myself. See, when, when Brooks heard just the basic characters of Star Wars, he's like, no thanks, I'm going to go to Sinbad. But if he would have heard more components of how the pieces, the mechanics of the narrative fit together, he may have known it's a little bit bigger story than that. And that's one of the goals for tonight, that we would see bigger pieces of the story and start to connect some dots. Would you pray with me and for me as we get started? Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to get into your word. God, we pray that you would help us to see not only the story of God or the story of the Bible, but we would see our story. God, that we would see uh, a connection between what you're trying to do in the world and what you're doing in our lives. God, even helping us see why we're sitting here tonight. God, we all walked in here in different states tonight. God, some of us walked in um, excited about how the weekend has gone or maybe even excited about how the week um, is looking up ahead. Or maybe it's been the exact opposite for some of us. Or maybe of us just have a, a nagging head cold like I do. But God, we pray that you would speak to each one here tonight. We thank you for your word. Thank you that you are not silent, but you speak through your word. And we pray that you would do that tonight. God, show us wonderful things in your word as we open it up together. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, last week we looked at some pretty heavy things. That's the wrong direction. Um, We looked at some pretty heavy things, but we tried to answer this question. What is wrong with the world? And I'll just tell you right now that the sermon that you're about to hear is going to be very disappointing. It's going to be disappointing for you, and it's going to be disappointing for me. And the reason is because of how much we're not going to cover. So some of you in the room, I feel like, are going to hear just enough to get enticed and then go, oh, but now I want to read it for myself. And that's okay. Some of you that maybe know the Old Testament better are going to be like, you didn't even talk about this over here. You didn't even talk about that guy. How'd you miss this guy? So I'm telling you right now, guaranteed you will be disappointed in this sermon. Just going to throw that out there. And tonight, I'm going to go to bed tonight going, why didn't I talk about Moses? What the heck? So we're both going to be disappointed. Let's go. Okay. So last week, what is wrong with the world? This week, the promise. Last week we talked about rebellion. This week we talk about the promise. What is God's plan? And that's the question for tonight because God bettered have a plan. God God bettered have a plan. When we get to the end of Genesis 2, which is where we left off last week, God, or Genesis 3, God bettered have a plan because things go south. So when it comes to the story of God, we get to the end of the third chapter of the first book, and we 
have an expectation. We have a hope that there's a plan moving forward. Have you been there in your life? Where you start asking the question, okay, what has gone wrong? And then the next thought is, okay, what's the plan? God, you got a plan for this? Or maybe you look to yourself, do I have a plan for this? Okay, what am I going to do next? That's what this sermon is all about. What is the plan? What's the promise moving forward? Open up with me to Isaiah chapter 40. If you want to find it, you can literally open up a hard copy of the Bible to the middle and you're going to be pretty darn close. Isaiah chapter 40 is where we're going to start. This is where we ended the sermon last week. And this is what um, I prayed at the end of the sermon last week. Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 1, comfort, comfort for my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is right smack dab in the middle of the Bible, but it is also a linchpin in the story of God. See, Isaiah is prophesying this. He is hearing this from the Lord and then he is proclaiming it to the people when God's people are in exile. God's promise has never seemed further away than it does at this moment. And God is reconfirming his promise, my glory will be revealed. How can God make such a promise when God's people are so far away from everything they have longed for, everything they have wanted? See, they're in exile because of their own sin and their own suffering. They have sinned and they have been sinned against and they find themselves far away from God's promise. And in this Isaiah 40, when God says, my glory will fill the earth, my glory will be revealed, one pastor and commentator when talking about this verse said that in this moment, God really creates a new tense in language and it's the future perfect tense. It's really a future that only God can guarantee. So how will this be accomplished? Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3. This was in last week's um, passage. We looked at Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, before God tells Adam and Eve what will be the consequence for their sin— for their seeking autonomy from God. As we talked about last week, they didn't want to just do what was wrong. They wanted to decide what was right and wrong for themselves. And before the consequences are given out to them, God has this to say to the serpent, the enemy of God and man. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the, these verses and in the remaining verses in Genesis chapter 3, we see what is going to be the problem for mankind. We see that there is an enemy who will be defeated, but the victory will go to God. There will be a victor that comes, a promise is given. 
This victory will be for creation and for humanity against the serpent. And all of this is given to them before the consequences of their sin are dished out by God. Um, Steve was recounting this story from um, their community group where as they were talking in their community group, it was pointed out that before these consequences were given, we think, man, it must be hard to get those consequences from God. But Adam and Eve are sitting there thinking, after all our sin, and now I can still have kids even though it's going to be painful, and I can work even though it's going to be toilsome to me, we see here from the very beginning mercy the promise of mercy and victory amidst the pain. So, how will God do this? He will do this through covenants. We've already seen a couple covenants up to this point in the book of Genesis. First, there's a covenant with Adam and Eve. There's go, be fruitful, multiply. And then there's this, in uh, chapter 3, there's this covenant given. Hey, Your work is going to be toilsome. Your childbirth is going to be painful. It's going to be hard living on this earth in a state of sin. But I ultimately will provide the victory. And then there's the Noahic covenant. In the covenant with Noah, God makes the promise again. Go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God keeps promising himself to his people. And then today, in Genesis 12, what Rebecca read for us, we see the Abrahamic covenant the covenant with Abraham. So if we look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 that Rebecca just read for us, as well as verse 7, we see the components of this covenant that God made with his people, starting with Abraham. So in this covenant, we see five promises given to Abraham, and that's what I want to highlight in these seven verses. We see five promises given to Abraham. Which is interesting because in the first nine chapters of Genesis, man is given five curses or consequences for their sin. Mankind is given five consequences, five curses for their sin. And here Abraham is given five promises. So let's take a look at these promises. If you want to open up Genesis 12, we'll go through these briefly. The first one is he promises Abraham that you will be a great nation. You will be a great nation. Kings and kingdoms will come from Abraham. Kings and kingdoms will come from Abraham. Number two, I will bless you. I will bless you. As one commentator said, what God intends for all of mankind, he here promises to Abraham and his offspring. He will bless you. God promises to bless Abraham and his offspring. Number three, I will make your name great. And this really does come to pass as we look at God's word. We see the name Abraham appear 60 times in the New Testament. He is considered a patriarch of the faith. He is mentioned multiple times by Jesus, Paul, Peter, and the author of Hebrews. So indeed, Abraham's name is made great. Number four, you will be a blessing. God here once again is offering prosperity and flourishing as Abraham walks in his ways. If we remember back to Genesis, Adam and Eve were given the task of taking what God had created and cultivating it. 
bringing about flourishing out of what God had created. Here, that commitment, that charge, that stewardship is given to Abraham as well. And then number five, I will bless those who bless you. This is a striking covenant from a rich and merciful and sovereign God. And God's covenant has always been for all people everywhere. And that's what he's telling Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. This idea has ramifications that are picked back up in the New Testament by Paul, by the author of Hebrews. And we get to see what that fully means as we open up the New Testament. God has a plan for all families of the earth through Abraham. First, the first state that we're in is in Adam. We are in Adam when we are born in the flesh. So by our nature and choice, we are children of Adam. And we experience the same sin and chaos that we discussed with Adam. And then the next thing is Galatians 3 tells us that we are in Abram. We are in Abraham. And then ultimately we are in Christ. There's more on this in Genesis 15 and 17 as God continues to covenant with Abraham throughout this story. Abraham, like the others who, would, who came before him and all those that would come after him, did not live up to God's call on his life. He ultimately serves as a type. And so we're going to go through a couple of things here that are going to help us with the conclusion and the summary of the Old Testament. So the first concept that I want us to take a look at is the concept of representatives. These different representatives of different times throughout the Old Testament. So as we open up the Old Testament, here are some of the, the main figureheads, the representatives. They're God's representatives on earth to carry out his um, promises to carry out his deliverance, to carry out aspects of his nature, even to carry out his justice and his consequences. So here we see patriarchs like Abraham, like Moses. We see priests, we see judges that actually enact God's judgment, not just on foreign bodies, foreign countries, but on God's people themselves. We see kings come and sit on the throne when Israel, God's people, is a kingdom. We see the prophets come and speak the words of God. And then another group of people that we don't think about often is the marginalized. God just consistently in the Old Testament chooses these marginalized people to carry out his wishes. First, we have Abraham. Abraham's nothing special. He's just living amongst a bunch of idolatrous people and God calls him. God gives him a new name. God puts a blessing on his life out of no goodness of his own before he was righteous in any of his actions. We see uh, women like Hagar and Rahab and Hannah and Deborah and Ruth being called out by God and being used for great things, not because they were Jewish or royal or there was anything great about them. It was just because of God's call. We see Joseph, who was not the firstborn. God continues to use guys that are not the firstborn. David is another example of the same. We continue to see God use the unlikely, the secondborn, the twelfthborn child, a pagan woman from another people group being called out by God and blessed to do great things for God. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 7, we hear a little bit about God's heart for choosing his people. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That lays it out for us. God's choosing is not based on those that are mighty in number or mighty in stature or mighty in intellect or mighty in religious stature. But it's by his choosing with his mighty sovereign hand. So representatives, that's a key concept. How and why God chooses people in the Old Testament. The next thing that we need to look at is foreshadowing foreshadowing as we read certain parts of the Old Testament, actually large parts of the Old Testament, there are large swaths of it that we're like, ah, this isn't making any sense. This is kind of slow. I don't understand what's going on here. And we we kind of speed through those or ignore them altogether in our Bible reading plan. But each of these things that is taking place in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of what is to come. They're a foreshadowing of what is to come. I've used this example before, but it's just so how I'm wired. I love any book, any play, any movie that is told in a nonlinear fashion. When you're just given the pieces, bits and pieces here, and then at the end of the movie or at the end of the book, you're like, okay, run that back. I need to watch the whole thing now so I know what transpired in this movie. Because what I like to, my brother and I joke about this, we didn't know how to watch it the first time right? Like if there's a movie that's told and you get kind of that final piece in the end that puts the rest together, you're like, okay, now I need to rewatch it. I've watched, maybe I'm just bad at watching movies, but I've watched movies where I didn't realize who the main character was, and I'm like, I was watching the wrong guy. Or I I don't think about the title of the movie, and I'm like, oh, that's what the movie is about. I should have started thinking about that from the beginning. I tend to watch the wrong things in movies. And then I get to the end, I'm like, I was watching the wrong movie. I need to start that over again. Very, God's story, the story of God is very much like that where we get bits and pieces of things, and it's really only when we get to the next part, into the New Testament, that we start to see the foreshadowing that was taking place. We see just a couple I'll mention here. I put them up here on the screen. But we see Adam and Eve who sinned before God. And one of the first things that they recognize is that they are naked, but instead of having no shame before each other in God, now they have shame. They have shame in being naked before one another and being naked before God. And one of the first things God does is he provides a covering. An animal is slain. And the animal is used to provide clothing. And God covers their shame from the very beginning. This is a foreshadowing of what God would do in the future. There's an incident in the Old Testament where, um, I won't get into it, we could go down this rabbit trail forever, but basically there's these snakes, they're biting God's people, they're getting poisoned, and the only way they can be saved is if this bronze serpent is held up. And when the people look at that bronze serpent, they're saved from the poisonous snakes. 
strange. One of those strange kind of stories in the Bible. But then in the New Testament, we read about Jesus being the one that was lifted up. And when our eyes are on him, we will be saved. There's foreshadowing all over in the Old Testament. This is an important concept for us to keep in mind. So now we can talk about this idea of covenants. This idea of covenants. God makes covenants with his people. The word testament and the word covenant, they have a a meaning that's important to us. When we look at God's word, the first page before we read Genesis says the Old Testament or introduction to the Old Testament. And then right before we read the book of Matthew, we read the New Testament. A testament is a story about something that has taken place. It's the story of people's lives. It's an archive of someone's life. A lot of times now we call it a biography, but basically that's what a testament is. It's the story of something that has taken place. And in God's story, we see what he has done. Remember this story is called the story of God. It is the story of mankind too, but mankind is not the main character. It's God. And in this story of God, he makes covenants with his people. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see him make a covenant with a couple. In the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9:13, we see him make it with a family, Noah and his family. In Genesis 12, 15, 17, we see him make it with Abraham and his people. In the Mosaic covenant, we see him make it with the Jewish people, a nation, the people of God. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see the Davidic covenant where he makes a covenant with David. And that covenant is that there will be a king on the throne for all time in the line of David. Now, something interesting about these covenants is that there is a commitment and a promise. And that commitment and that promise is made by God. It's not a law. It's a covenant. It's a relational agreement between two entities. And in these covenant, God is making a promise to his people. And these covenants are really one-sided. They are. There's conditions to them, and there's things that he asks his people to do, but ultimately it is God covenanting with his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, we see that just like we do, God's people go astray. Deuteronomy 31, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise up and they will whore after foreign gods among them and the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and they will break my covenant that I have made with them. It did not surprise God when Adam and Eve did not hold up their end of the bargain. It did not surprise God when Noah and his family did not hold up their end of the covenant. It did not surprise God when Abraham, Moses, David, or you and me don't hold up our end of the covenant. God's covenant 
is based on his promise towards us. Because here's the thing. As we read the Old Testament, as we read God's word, what we see is God's people failing time and time again. We see the moral failings in the Pentateuch. We see the corporate wanderings of the Israelites. We see the rise and the fall of many kings of Israel. We see ultimately God's kingdom that's supposed to be a representative kingdom of him on this earth is divided. We see the laments that we talked about last week where God's people look at the world around them and they don't see things going according to God's plan. We see these examples in books like Ecclesiastes and Job where things don't seem to go as planned for God's people. We see the warnings of the prophets time and time and time again. In most chapters of the Bible and in this story of God series that we're going through, we have to be left with the question, was this really God's plan? Was this really God's people? Is this really how God's promise is going to be accomplished? And God's people felt the same way. That's why we have the laments. That's why we have Ecclesiastes. That's why we have the book of Job. That's why we have the prophets. As they look at the world, they say, wait, God made this promise. Our world doesn't seem to be matching up to God's promise. In our vernacular, sometimes we'll say that someone has promise. What we mean is that they have potential right? We'll say that a, a young athlete or a young scholarly figure, that they show a lot of promise. Well, in scripture, there was a lot of people, I'm making it sound bad, but these people had a lot of promise in their lives. Noah had promise. Remember, he and his family are selected to build the boat and be God's boat that uh, his people survive, creation survives through the flood. Yet as we looked at last week, Noah crashed and burned. Abraham seemed to have promise. Moses, Aaron, Samson, Saul, David, Isaiah all had promise, all had credentials, all had strength in human terms, yet they did not live up to their promise. They failed. We fail. At many, many times in my life, I thought I had a lot of promise. Meaning, you know what? I am starting to become a good Bible teacher or a good counselor or a good whatever. And I thought, man, I'm showing a lot of promise. And you know what? Every time I was wrong. Because God doesn't use the promising. God doesn't use the strong. God doesn't use the mighty. He uses the weak and the humble. Back when um, I first started in ministry about 20 years ago, there was a common saying that a lot of churches latched onto um, by uh, someone in the church leadership guru world. And his famous saying, if you were in church leadership 20 years ago, you've heard the saying, he would say, the local church is the hope of the world. He would say, the local church is the hope of the world. Let's hope not. This man that spoke those words, since he spoke those words, his church completely started over because they figured out they had the wrong philosophy and they were getting lots of people to worship services, but their discipleship was an inch thick. And then a few years ago, he left ministry because of a moral failing. Apparently, the local church is not the hope of the world. 
See, if the promise has to come from us and our goodness and getting church done right, then there's no hope for us or for the world. The promise ultimately has to come from God and it ultimately has to be fulfilled by God. In Genesis 3.15, we don't say God, say, you know what, I'm going to give my people all this latent potential so eventually they'll become awesome like I need them to be to represent me well. No, what does God say in Genesis 3.15? He says, here's what I'm going to, um, how I'm going to bless you and how I'm going to send you out and how I'm going to covenant with you. But ultimately, the promise is on me. I am going to do the work on your behalf. In the Old Testament, God provided his people through sacrifices. To sacrifice to atone for their sins, an animal would have to die. And with Abraham and Isaac, there was a sacrifice given for a man and his family. The Passover meal was instituted as a sacrifice for the family. The Day of Atonement was instituted by the priests and the sacrifices. This was a sacrifice for a nation and a people. But if we remember from what we've learned tonight, the promise was for the whole world. So what about the whole world? Where would their hope, where would their future, where would their atonement come from? The Old Testament is a foreshadowing but from the beginning is based on a covenant promise that came from God. The people of God in the Old Testament had their ups and downs. And the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter eleven thirty nine that the Old Testament heroes of the faith never received the full promise of God. The promise was yet to come. Would you open with me to Isaiah Chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Again, Isaiah is writing this to God's people who are in exile due to their sin and sin done against them. They're as far from God's promise seemingly as they could be. And then Isaiah 52 A servant is promised to come to serve God. But then in Isaiah 53, verse 12, we read this. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors in isaiah 52 and 53 we are told a perfect servant would come a perfect sacrifice would come a perfect priest would come a perfect king would come and the promise would be fulfilled as we read the old testament I want you to do something with me if you have a hardcover copy of the book. I want you to take two fingers and uh, take Genesis 1 through 12 in one finger. And then like three of you have a hard copy Bible, so this is going to work really well. Um, And then um, I want you to take the book of Matthew to the end of your Bible. 
And I want you to look at how much is in between. Have you ever wondered why the Old Testament is so darn long and the New Testament is so short? As we read the Old Testament, we just keep seeing God is faithful. God is merciful. As his people, we have so much evidence of what happens when God's people go their own way and think they have promise and think they can do it. And as we read the Old Testament and we see those things happen, here's what we have to keep in mind. It's God telling us, no, really, I promise. No, really, I promise. If my people can go this far astray, if they can do this thing over here, if they can do this over here, if they can whore themselves out to foreign gods, no, really, I promise. As we read the Old Testament, it's God saying, I promise. And there's nothing you can do to separate yourself from my promise. God's promise is faithful. And in Hebrews 6, 13, we read, When God made a promise to Abraham, he had no one greater by whom to swear. And so he swore a promise on himself. In the covenant with Abraham, one detail that I left out is that in the ancient world when they would make a covenant, often kings would take animals and they would cut those animals in two and they would put half the dead body on one side and half the dead body on the other side and the kings would walk through the dead bodies together. And what they were doing in that moment is they were covenanting into a relationship And they were saying, if I break my end of the promise, if I break my end of the covenant, may what happened to this animal happen to my life. Well, God did the same with Abraham, and Abraham got all the animals ready and everything, but instead of God and Abraham walking through hand in hand, Abraham was asleep on the side. And God walked through those split animals himself. He was saying, I promise, and my life, my very life, will be torn in two to show that my promise is good and true. Tonight, before we jump into conclusion, I want to leave us with some applications so you're not left hanging again this week. The whole Hobbit, is there a third movie thing? So, some application. First off, read the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. There is some awesome stuff. There's some weird stuff. But there's some awesome stuff too. Hopefully even the weird stuff you can better understand now. Those first seven chapters of Leviticus talking about how to fillet a goat, not super exciting. Um, But then you read the New Testament and you think about everything we've talked about here tonight. And man, it takes on new life. What it took for them to prepare a subpar even sacrifice. Read the Old Testament. You cannot make sense of the Old Testament without the New, and you can't make full sense of the New Testament without the Old. So read the Old Testament. Did you know large chunks of the New Testament are really Jesus quoting the Old Testament? Acts is the apostles going back and preaching sermons through the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. I grew up in a church, Bible teaching church, Bible believing church, but the Old Testament was like It was kind of like that room in your house that you don't want to go into. There's two reasons you don't want to go into that house. 
Either one, you're afraid what you're going to see in that house, or you look in that room and it's boring. There's no furniture. You're like, ah, I'll just keep the door shut. No, the Old Testament is incredible. It shows us what Jesus really did and came for. Read the Old Testament. We've recommended some Bible reading plans on our app. Check out those Bible reading plans that blend where you're reading the Old Testament and the New Testament together. So rich. It has made my Bible reading in the morning so rich to read a little bit of Old Testament with a little bit of New. Second, pay heed. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 says the failures of the Old Testament serve as a warning to us. The story of the Bible is not be great because these people were great. The story of the Bible is God's promises are true. And God is glorious and God is gracious. But we need to pay heed. As we see God's people in the Old Testament bow down to golden statues and whore after foreign gods, we can't point the finger and say, man, they were so bad. I can't believe God put up with them. As we see those things take place and we look inside of our own heart, we see ways that our heart goes astray and forgets our first love. As we see God's people, I used to read about the Israelites wandering around the desert. Man, God delivered them, part of the Red Seas, delivered them to the other side, and they're like, I'm hungry. God provides food, and they're like, nah, not that food. That's not what I was going for. I'm like, stupid people, why are you complaining? God just delivered you. And the first time I read kind of through that for myself as an adult, I'm like, man, these Israelites, they are a joke. But the more I thought about it, and as I read through it more, as I've experienced idolatry and grumbling in my own heart, I'm like, oh, I complain about God's blessing all the time. We need to pay heed. Again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that the Old Testament and the failings of it serve as a warning to us. And lastly, before we go into a time of communion, we can learn from a people that lived in a time of promise. They lived for a kingdom that would come. They lived for a salvation that would come. They lived for a deliverance that would come. They lived for a king that would come once again. And while we have the advantage of getting to remember back to what Christ has already done for us, we also live in a time of promise. God says, my kingdom is coming. Your ultimate deliverance from sin and death and our enemy is coming. And Jesus says, I am going to prepare a place for you, but I am coming back to sit on a throne in the new heavens and the new earth, the throne that he has deserved all along. We now live in a time of promise. And I don't know about you, but there are times when I need that promise. When I can't remember what God has done for me in the past, so I have to look ahead to his promise of deliverance, the promise of his presence with me all the time. Not just when I go to the temple, but all the time. Sometimes I have to live in that place where God promises when I don't see deliverance coming here in this life. We can learn from a people that lived in a time of uh, promise. Something that helps with that is remembering what Christ has already done. 
Would you pray with me? The worship team's going to come up. They're going to lead us in a time of communion where we remember what Christ has done. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have promised us. God, thank you that your promise still stands. Thank you that you are a coming king. Thank you that you have promised a kingdom. God, thank you that you have sent and promised your Holy Spirit. God, thank you for the warnings of the Old Testament. Thank you for your mercy and your promise and your holiness that you have poured out and shown your people for generations. God, thank you for the whole counsel of Scripture. God, it is useful for our lives. God, we pray that we would be devoted to you. And God, if we're devoted to you, we'll be devoted to the testaments, both of them, of who you are and what you've done. God, thank you that we can come together here and remember you and remember what you have done and look forward to the kingdom that is yet to come.